0: Philippians chapter 2, verses 25 through 30, and we'll open in prayer and I'll confess to God what I just did. Beginning of verse 25, but I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Let's pray together. Father, we come now to your word with the expectation that you will speak to us through it. We pray that in all that is said and all that is done and all that is thought this morning, that our mind and attention may be upon what you have for us in this text. That we may learn from it, that we may be convicted, that we may be encouraged and enlightened this morning to the, your praise and honor and glory. We do ask this now in Jesus' great name. Amen. Well, we come now to the fourth of the four examples that Paul gives us of the principle that he laid out back in verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with lowliness or humility of mind, let each of you esteem others as more important than himself. Let you not look out only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. That's the principle that sort of sits like an umbrella over chapter 2. And then Paul gives us four examples. And this fourth example is a man whom we would know nothing about if it were not for these verses, In Philippians, a man by the name of Epaphroditus. If it were not for what Paul says in verses 25 to 30, we would have never known that Epaphroditus had ever lived. And I consider Epaphroditus to sort of be the example for the rest of us. Let me explain what I mean by that. You read those words of Paul in verses 3 and 4, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but esteem other people as more important than yourselves and look out for their interests. And we read that and we think, that is a noble goal. Is it not? It's almost idealistic. It's a great thing to shoot for. But can I really be like that? Can I really have that type of a mindset, that type of a mentality? Well, Paul goes on to give us four examples of that mentality. And we read these four examples and there's a tendency within each one of us to find an excuse why we can't measure up to any of those four examples. Like, for instance, Jesus, Paul says, He existed in the form of God, did not consider that equality with God something to be held on to at all costs. But stepping down and laying aside the conveniences and the comforts of heaven, He came down here and He was made like a servant and He became obedient even to the point of death. That's a great example. And there's something inside of us that probably tends to say to ourselves, that's a great example, Jim, or that's a great example, Paul, but I'm not the God-man. And if I were God, then living selflessly would probably be a lot easier for me than it is. But since I'm not God, since I'm not God in human flesh, Since I'm this wretched, miserable, wormy, sinful, depraved, wicked creature still in this body of death, how is it possible that I could possibly be expected to measure up and to lay aside my own interests like Jesus did? He didn't have a sinful nature like we do. So that's a little bit sort of out of there. Oh, okay, well, there's a second example, a second illustration, and that's Paul. Paul, you remember from verses 17 and 18 of chapter 2, Paul was willing to lay aside his own interests and just be a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of the Philippians. He viewed their faith, their service, their work, their Christian walk as something that really was of most significance and his own service, his own apostolic ministry as something that could just be poured up as sort of an insignificant add-on to that. That was how he viewed himself. But then there's something inside of us that says, well, that sounds really great to be like Paul, but Listen. I don't have all the advantages of Paul, do yet, do I? I mean, after all, if Jesus appeared to me on the Damascus Road like he appeared to Paul, if I were able to see visions and dreams and angels, if I was a vehicle of personal revelation, if I had been personally commissioned to apostolic ministry like the Apostle Paul, if I had seen the risen Christ, if I had been taken up into the third heaven to see my eternal home, if I had all of those blessings and benefits, then I would probably live a lot more like Paul than I do. Right? Well, how about a third illustration? How about Timothy? Well, Timothy was one who considered the interests of others ahead of his own. Paul says, I can, I'm sending Timothy to you because he will be genuinely concerned for your interests and not his own. He's a sacrificial servant. He served with me in furtherance of the gospel. He seeks after the things of Christ. And we look at Timothy and we can say what? Look at the advantages that Timothy had. I mean, I know Timothy. Who did Timothy spend all of his life with from the time that he was an early teenager all the way through to his adult life? Who was it? Paul. You got Paul as your teacher? Of course you're going to turn out like Timothy. I've had a lot of mentors in my life, friends, but none of them have been like Paul. None of them. So if I had Paul as my mentor, then like a student would be fully trained, uh, like a student would be just like his teacher when fully trained. If I had Paul as my mentor, I would probably be a lot like Timothy. Then all of those excuses, the excuses we offer for not being like Jesus and not being like Paul and not being like Timothy, they all dissolve and vanish away when we open up our Bibles and we read about Epaphroditus. And that's why I call Epaphroditus the example for the rest of us. He's just like you and I. Just the average Joe Christian. Just somebody who was sent as an emissary from Philippi to Paul. Here's a chunk of money. Deliver this to Paul. Stay there and serve him as long as he needs you. And then come back. Simple task. Simple simple set of instructions. It's all Epaphroditus had to do. And yet we read about him in the New Testament and we see that there's certain things about him that really are worthy of our admiration, worthy of our following him as an example. He's quite an interesting man. Let me give you an outline for the last part of Philippians chapter 2, and then we're going to start looking at Epaphroditus in more detail. Here's the outline. In verse 25, Paul gives a description of Epaphroditus. Just a description. Then you notice verse 26 through 28, the Apostle Paul, and I already read those verses, the Apostle Paul gives the reasons for sending Epaphroditus back to Philippi. He says, because he was distressed, it is longing for all of you and so that you might have joy and so that i might be less concerned about you he names three reasons why he's sending epaphroditus back to philippi then in verses 29 and 30 the apostle paul describes to the philippians how they should receive epaphroditus back and how they should receive and treat men who are like epaphroditus so today we're just going to look at this description of epaphroditus and then we're going to look at one of the reasons why paul sent him back to philippi and the reason that he gives for sending epaphroditus back so verse 25 the description of Epaphroditus. Now, Epaphroditus is one of those names that I really like. It has a cool ring to it, I think. Remember back in the book of Acts when we talked about the island of Scytus? I said that was a cool name, Scytus. Epaphroditus is like that. I like the name Silas. I had a dog one time, named him Silas. I like the name Silas, Epaphroditus. If I have another dog, I would name him Scytus. If I had another child, I would probably try and name him Scytus because I think that's a cool name. So I apparently like names that end in us, which you could tell from my family. No, you can't, because none of my kids. And I didn't get my way on any of the names that we had. So, what you think, probably think is a good thing, we'd have Snidus, Epaphroditus, Silas, and Judas. The So, Epaphroditus is a form of the name Aphrodite. Aphrodite, Aphrodite was the Greek goddess of love. Epaphroditus, the Romans called her Venus. Aphrodite, the Romans called Venus. Aphrodite means love. Epaphroditus means lovely, charming, or amiable. Now we can possibly deduce from Epaphroditus' name that he grew up likely in a Gentile family, likely in an idol-worshipping family, because it was common back then for parents to name their children after an idol or in some form of the idol's name, the family idol, or the religion that the family was caught up in. So Epaphroditus, this is conjecture, but it's somewhat based on at least a good conjecture, that Epaphroditus grew up in a Gentile family, an unbelieving family. He came to faith later in life. His parents had worshipped Aphrodite and named him after her. Now, what is interesting is what we do not ever read about Epaphroditus. There are certain things that Paul never mentions. And these things, I think, are interesting and worthy of note. We never read anything about Epaphroditus' background. Do you? How old was he when he came to faith in Christ? We don't know. When he's with Paul now, is he an old man? Is he a middle-aged man? Is he a young in his 20s? Late teens? How old is Epaphroditus? We don't know. We don't know how old he was. We don't know how old he was when he came to faith. We don't even know how he came to faith. Did Paul lead him to the Lord when he was in Philippi? Or did the Philippian church, through their witness and testimony, bring Epaphroditus to faith? Or was Epaphroditus led to the Lord someplace else? We don't read anything in the book of Philippians or anywhere in Scripture that Epaphroditus was an elder that he was a deacon, that he was a church planner, that he was a missionary. We don't know anything about his natural giftedness. We don't know anything about his spiritual giftedness. We have no idea if this is the first time or the second time or the hundredth time that he had seen the Apostle Paul. There's nothing recorded about any connections that he had with any other apostles in the New Testament. The only time he shows up is right here in Rome with a gift for Paul from the church at Philippi. That's the only thing we read of Epaphroditus. As far as we know, he never received any revelation. He didn't record any Scripture. We don't know if he was a prophet or a preacher or a teacher. He's not noted for any of his spiritual gifts. We don't know that he ever planted a church. As far as we know, there's no outstanding accomplishment whatsoever for Epaphroditus. That's why I call him the example for the rest of us. See, I can relate to that, can't you? I can relate to Epaphroditus. He's just an average guy showing up in Rome with a gift from the church at Philippi. He's just an average Joe Christian showing up To give Paul a gift to serve him from the church in Philippi as their emissary, as their ambassador, as their envoy. He's carrying that and he just appears on the scene. No mention of his giftedness. No mention of his talents. No mention of any massive accomplishments. Just showing up to do what he can to serve. My guess is that everybody here is more like an Epaphroditus than you are a Paul. At least I know I'm more like Epaphroditus than I am a Paul. I don't have the benefit of visions and dreams. God doesn't whisper anything in my ear. I have no benefit of seeing the risen Christ or anything like that. I haven't been discipled or mentored by any giants in the Christian faith. In all likelihood, none of us are going to have our names in the top 100 of the who's who of Christian history. Or even the top 1,000. I probably won't make it in the top million. Or 10 million. We're not world shakers. We're not superstars. Neither was Epaphroditus. That's not to suggest that Epaphroditus was not a faithful man, that he was not a trustworthy man, and that he was not an influential man. I think he was all of those. But Epaphroditus goes to show us two things. Number one, you do not have to be a superstar Christian and have your name recorded in bright lights all over everything to have an influential, eternal, and significant impact for Christ, even for eternity. And second, it shows us that even average people can be selfless, just like Jesus, just like Paul, and just like Timothy. To have the mind of Christ, it is within reach for every Christian to live selflessly. So look at Epaphroditus' description. Paul gives in verse 25 five words, five descriptions of Epaphroditus. You'll notice them. He calls him my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, my uh, your messenger and minister to my need. Those are the five five words that he uses to describe Epaphroditus. Now notice a couple things about the list. First of all, I want you to notice that the list moves from general to specific. My brother, that's something you could say about any Christian. That's just a general term designating his brothership, kinship with Paul. But then it moves all the way up to minister, which is a very technical, very specific, very detailed term, as you're going to see when we get there. Notice also that though it is in an ascending order of importance, from brother, which is just that common term, and it goes all the way up to the highest compliment that Paul could pay him, which was a minister to his need. Second thing I want you to notice about the list is how it falls nicely into two categories. The first three words are used to describe Epaphras' relationship to Paul, my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. The second two describe or the last two describe Epaphras' relationship to the church in Philippi, your messenger and my minister, and your minister to my need. So look at the first one, brother, Adelphos in the Greek. it's a word that simply means brother. It's a word that was used and could be used to describe anybody who was your brother in christ your Your kindred. Somebody else who had the same father that you do. It's used of Christians just in general as being my brothers. But it's not just an unspecific sort of general emotionless term because the term brother carries with it all of the familial type love of calling somebody your brother. So it's not just, oh, he's my brother in Christ. You and I have brothers in Christ that we sort of keep in arm's length. You know that, right? He's my brother. But... (laughs) Just like having Uncle Charlie with you on the camp, family camp out. You don't want to keep him at arm's length. He's my brother in Christ, but I don't want to spend... That's not the type of brother that Paul's talking about. He means brother in the sense of it carries with it the idea of love, of, of companionship, of somebody that he really had a genuine concern for and a genuine love for. Quite a compliment to have the Apostle Paul call you brother, isn't it? Wouldn't you feel complimented just by that term? Have the Apostle Paul be able to put his arm around you and say, this is my brother or my sister. Maybe some of you ladies would feel offended. This is my brother or my sister. Do you realize that Paul is your brother? Fearing in Christ, you've never met him. But I'll tell you something, I plan on spending several thousand years with my brother Paul, eventually getting to know him and ask him a lot of questions. He's my brother. And it also shows you a lot about the humility of Paul. Look where he puts himself, down on the level of what? Brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier. I'm just down here. He doesn't view Epaphroditus as an inferior subordinate. He views him as a brother in Christ. And that's what we are, friends. Whether you teach Sunday school or whatever it is, you're a brother in Christ. This, the hierarchy is gone. There are spheres of authority, yes. There are different gifts and talents, yes. But in the end, we are brothers. And we ought to treat each other as such. Second term that Paul uses, fellow worker. soon ergos. Soon meaning with. Ergos meaning labor, work, or toil. Something you do, a task, or a job. It's not something that was used to describe all Christians in general. Never used that way in the New Testament. Of the 13 times that Paul uses the term fellow worker, Uh, Sorry, of the 13 times the New Testament uses the term fellow worker, 12 of them are Paul. It's only used one time by somebody other than Paul. It was one of Paul's favorite phrases that he used to describe his companions in ministry. And it means somebody that you work alongside of. Somebody that you link arms, you join forces, you, you link hands, you work alongside of somebody together in a task. And Paul used it of furthering the ministry of the gospel or furthering the kingdom, advancing the purpose of the gospel or His ministry. Somebody who pulled up alongside of Him and labored with Him in the same way, not as a subordinate, not as a superior, but as a fellow worker. Paul would call them a, my fellow worker. It's not a word that's used to describe of all Christians in general because not all Christians are fellow workers. You understand that? It's true. Not all Christians are fellow workers. There are people even sitting here who have been here for years who have never lifted a finger to advance the cause of the Gospel with anybody that you sit next to on a Sunday morning. Never. So in no sense could I call you a fellow worker. A brother, yes, but not somebody that I labor alongside of. Not somebody that I link arms with. Not somebody that we have common cause with. Not somebody that I'm close to. That's the term fellow worker. Somebody that you link arms with them and you strive together in a ministry focused on a goal, doing it together. Churches are attended, large numbers all over this country by people who in no way work. In no way are they fellow workers with anybody else that they sit next to on a Sunday morning. Third t- third title. Not only fellow worker, but a fellow soldier a word that means somebody who labors and fights shoulder to shoulder with somebody. In the Roman army, they had interesting shields. They were really neat. They would link them together and put the shields side by side. And they had clasps on them that they they could link them together like this. And they could literally form a wall of shields. And these shields were six feet tall. And the soldiers could stand behind the shields linked edge to edge. And they could just walk a big massive army of people in this massive barricade just coming at the enemy. It was very intimidating. And those shields they would use as literally a wall that they would just advance and take territory and walk right over top of their enemy. They came underneath the shield, they killed them. And they would just advance and take territory that way. Somebody who stood beside you with their shields linked and your arms linked, walking together in the course of the war, that was somebody you would describe as a fellow soldier. It was somebody who stood beside you and fought. Paul uses the military analogy of a soldier or of warfare to describe his ministry, the gospel ministry, the apostolic ministry, his own stance. He uses the, the analogy of a soldier to describe Timothy and describe others who fought with him in the fight for the faith, for the truth, in the advancement of the gospel. And we're not talking jihad and literal shields. We're talking about spiritual warfare in the advance of the gospel of Christ, laboring together against foes, against enemies, against false doctrine for the purpose of advancing the gospel cause. That's a fellow soldier. Interestingly enough, and let's throw this in, no extra charge for this, this is on an aside. There are some people who say that being a soldier or fighting in a war or being in any sort of military or armed branch of the American service or any country's service is an immoral occupation. You shouldn't be involved in it. It's wrong for you to be in any branch of the military or any piece of warfare or to fight for your country or to, uh, to strive or to even be in the armed service. Immoral. Wrong. Wrong for Christians. So if there are any pacifists out here, I don't know if there are or not. Answer me this question. Riddle me this, Batman. If warfare and being a soldier is so wrong, then why does the Apostle Paul use it as an analogy for the Christian faith? You get that? Because in Paul's mind, in Peter's mind, and in the mind of the Apostles, a soldier was a perfect analogy for what it meant to be a Christian. Ready, disciplined, structured life, an ordered life, somebody who was always on guard, fighting for the right cause in the right way, and they did it with nobility. If it's such an immoral occupation, why does Paul, not only in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, but in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and here in Philippians and elsewhere in his epistles, he uses the analogy of a soldier as the most noble possible um, analogy of living a Christian life, fighting the Christian battle, walking in Christian ministry, and walking in truth. Why does the apostle do that if being a soldier is an immoral occupation? Notice that Paul doesn't call. Notice, you notice that the apostle Paul does not call Epaphroditus my fellow prostitute in the ministry. Why is that? Because prostitution was immoral, and the apostle Paul would never use an immoral occupation or an immoral practice as an analogy of what it meant to fight and be a true Christian. That's on the aside. That's the third one. Those three reflect Paul's relationship with Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. Now the next two indicate Epaphroditus' relationship to the church at Philippi. He calls him your messenger, the word is apostolos, and your minister to my need, your messenger, your apostolos. An apostle was simply somebody who was sent out or commissioned by somebody, an envoy, somebody who had an emissary, we would use the term an emissary. He was sent out on behalf of the church. Apostolos was used two ways in the New Testament. There are apostles of Christ like Paul and Peter and John. There were 13 of them who were designated as witnesses of Christ and sent out by Christ on His behalf as His mouthpiece, and God attended their ministries with signs and wonders because they spoke for Christ. Then there are other apostles that are mentioned in the New Testament. There are the, for instance, Epaphroditus is called an apostle. But what they mean by that is not one sent out by Christ, but one sent out on behalf of the church. So Epaphroditus came as an apostle, one sent out as an envoy to the Apostle Paul, and he was carrying something on behalf of the church. What was it? It was the gift, the offering that Paul mentions in chapter 4, verse 18. You don't need to turn there now, but you can do it later at your own time. It was an offering that the church had taken up for Paul, and Epaphroditus was their messenger. And the fifth title that Paul uses to describe Epaphroditus is your minister to my need. Minister to my need. What need is the Apostle Paul talking about? What need is the Apostle Paul talking about? One, of course, probably the financial need, right? And Epaphroditus had served the Apostle Paul by giving him the gift and ministered to him in that way to his financial need. But listen, there's something else. Epaphroditus, when he was sent from Philippi to Rome, was there for the purpose of ministering and serving the Apostle Paul in whatever way the Apostle Paul needed, as long as the Apostle Paul needed him. He was his minister, his servant, to my need. Now, if that's the case, if the Philippians sent Epaphroditus out saying, you're taking the gift, you're going to Rome, it's a couple weeks travel from Philippi to Rome, you're going to Rome, why don't you stay there until Paul's done with you? Until it's all done, you stay there as long as Paul needs. This would explain why, when Paul sends Epaphroditus back, he has to tell the Philippians, here are the reasons I'm sending him back. It's because he served me in this way, he was this type of a man, so honor him. Because you see, if Epaphroditus showed up five weeks after he left, the Philippians say, hey, 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 what are you doing here? You were supposed to stay there till the job was done. What are you doing back so soon? Well, that's why the Apostle Paul gives all these reasons why he's sending Epaphroditus back. Epaphroditus was there to serve the Apostle Paul. Now you'll notice beginning in verse 25 that the Apostle Paul talks about his travel plans. I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus. So Epaphroditus is the second fill-in for the Apostle Paul. Paul said, I want to come myself. I can't come because I'm in prison, so I would like to send Timothy because he's my number one man, but he needs to stay here with me. So I'm sending back to you Epaphroditus. And it's not that Epaphroditus is a lesser man than Timothy, it's that the Philippians are not expecting Paul to send him back just yet. By the way, Epaphroditus was the one who brought this letter with him from Rome to Philippi. He brought back this letter, the book of Philippians, to the church of Philippi, and as they're reading it, they're understanding now why the Apostle Paul's sending him back. So we've looked at the description of Epaphroditus. Now let's look at verse 26 where Paul talks about the reason for sending him back. Because he was longing for you all and he was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. He was longing for you all and he was distressed because he heard you, he, because you heard he was sick. The word longing there indicates to us that if Epaphroditus had this urging, this yearning inside of him to get back to his home church, if you've ever been in a church for a long period of time and you're used to serving with those people and worshiping with those people and seeing them every Sunday, then any time you're forced to be away for a period of time, you realize that you probably realize, or I'd hope that you do at some point, you're homesick, but it's not for things that you're familiar with necessarily at home, but just because you want to get back with the people of God that you're so used to fellowshipping with and loving every Sunday morning. There's a sense there where we can we can sort of step into Epaphroditus' shoes and say, Yeah, that would be me. I would be longing to get back to the people that I love so much. He was longing for them all because he was distressed. And that's an interesting word. It's only used three times in all the New Testament. Once here, and twice it's used in the Gospels. Once in Matthew and once in Mark. And it's used in the Gospels to describe Jesus' distress and anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a very strong, very emotional word. Epaphroditus was longing to get back to the Philippians and he was distressed. And the word means anxious in spirit. Troubled in heart. He was upset and distressed. Why? They had heard that he was sick. They had heard that he was sick. The word sick means without strength. Asthenos is the word. No strength. It's used to describe physical weakness in just lacking the ability to do something. It's also a very common word for physical illness. He was to the point that he had no strength. And the Philippians had heard this. And the Apostle Paul says, you had heard that he was sick, and indeed he was sick. Look at the next phrase. Sick to the point of death. And the words to the point of, literally translated would be, would be, a near neighbor to. He was sick and a near neighbor to death. We would use that in today's colloquialisms. We would say he was knocking on death's door. That's Epaphroditus. Humanly speaking, his life was hanging by a thread. Paul says, you heard that he was sick. But I want you to understand how sick he really was. He was sick to the point where he was a near neighbor to death. He was almost dying. Now listen, next week we're going to begin with sort of an excursus. We're going to be talking about Christians and sickness, or Christians and illness. Because there's a lot of false teaching about illness and sickness, particularly amongst God's people that needs to be corrected. And Epaphroditus offers us some great instruction and great uh, correction for any false doctrine concerning what we think about illnesses and sicknesses and, and being ill as a Christian and God's role in that. So we're going to look at that next week, and we're going to look at the last two reasons for uh, Paul sending Epaphroditus back. But I want you to notice why Epaphroditus was distressed. What was he distressed at? You had heard that he was sick. Was he distressed at being near death's door? Was he distressed at being sick? Wasn't distressed that he was sick? Wasn't distressed that he was at death's door. He wasn't distressed that somebody was measuring him up for a coffin. He was about to slip into a pair of pine pajamas. And what is he distressed about? Not his own well-being. Not his own well-being at all, but what? The Philippians had heard he was sick. And then he heard that they heard he was sick. And this distressed him. Don't you just wish that... I should say it this way. You know there are people in your life that you meet that you wish would adopt a little apaphroditism. I went to school with a a girl, Bible college, with a girl who was renowned, 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 she was well known, for for telling you all of her physical ailments every time you gave her more than ten seconds of your time. And she gave and it got to be taxing after a while, folks. She just you got to the point where you didn't want to ask her, Hey, how are you doing today? Because you knew what was coming, fifteen minutes of everything. Look, when you walk up to me on a Sunday morning or any time and you say, hey, Jim, how you doing? We have a mutual understanding. Here's the mutual understanding. I know that you really don't care how I'm doing. <laughs> I know that you really do not want to hear all of my physical ails. You don't. If you did, you would sit down and you would say, Jim, tell me about such and such. How, how are you feeling in this or how are you doing in that? That's how brothers approach it. But when you say, hey, how are you doing? You don't want to hear, oh, my ankles hurt, my knee hurts. My back hurts, my hairline's receding, I got a zip behind my ear. You don't want to hear about any of that stuff. And quite frankly, I don't want to tell you any of that stuff. I don't have a zip behind my ear, by the way. My hairline is receding, so pray for me. It's running to the back of my head like it saw a Sasquatch or something, and I get worried about it more each and every month. My hairline is receding, but you don't want to hear about that. What do you want me to say? Good. How you doing? Good. And we've just both wasted breath, and we're all the better for it. And we're content with that. That's our mutual understanding. But if you run into somebody who you say, how are you doing? And they give you the whole litany, 15 minutes of all my physical ailments. It becomes taxing after a while, does it not? And don't you just wish they would have, uh, that they would adopt a little epaphroditeism and just say, you know what? I'm really not interested in burdening somebody else with my trivial trials and ailments and afflictions. My uh, Bible professor that taught me the book of Philippians, Herb Peeler, in his uh, commentary on the book of Philippians, he writes this, How lightly and selfishly we burden one another with the stories of our troubles and pains. Most of us, I'm afraid, unlike Epaphroditus, would be troubled if our friends did not know about our afflictions. If they're bad enough, we want their sympathy, and if we handle them well enough, we want their praise. Even our troubles must somehow minister to ourselves. That's true. Listen, friends, when we really want to burden other people with how we're doing, when we really want them to dote on us, to worry about us, to pray about us, to worry for us, to ask us, that is just pure and simple, unreserved selfishness in its purest form. That's what that is. Now, does that mean that we should never tell one another about our burdens or about our cares or our ailments? Absolutely not. That's not what I'm talking about. It's Not what I'm talking about. There are people sitting here, who have real physical and emotional disturbances in their lives. People with bad backs, bad shoulders, bad uh, diseases, cancers, ailments, all of these things, getting treatments. We need to tell each other about those for the sake of prayer, to keep them before God's throne of grace. There's nothing wrong in that that is good, that is right, that is well, and it should be done. Prayer chains are good. But I guess it really boils down to this. Why do I want people to know what I'm suffering with? Is it so that they can pray and so that we can mutually be encouragement to one another? Or is it because I want them to know what I'm dealing with? Why do I want people to know that? It all boils down to the attitude of my heart. Here was a man, Epaphroditus, who was stepping, walking the tightrope of death. Paul says he was a near neighbor to death. And he gets distressed. Not at his own discomfort. Not at his own sickness. Not at his own impending doom. Hanging, as it were, from the human perspective, by a thread, and none of that distresses him. What worries him? The Philippians will be worried about me if they find out that I'm sick, and they found out that he was sick, and he just went, oh, distressed over it. Why? Because the emotional well-being of those that he loved, he didn't want them needlessly concerned over his little trivial ailments. Friends, that's the mind of Christ. That's considering others as more important than myself. doesn't mean we shouldn't share with one another Nothing wrong with that. We should. We should bear one another's burdens in that way and be concerned and pray for one another and share how we're doing physically. But it boils down to this question. What causes you distress? Does it distress you that people might needlessly worry about your circumstances and your physical ailments? Or does it distress you that people might not needlessly worry about your circumstances and your ailments? What causes you distress? i got to confess, sometimes I tell people how I'm doing just because I want them to know. I want you to know what I'm dealing with. It's not always the best thing. The mind of Christ in Epaphroditus caused him to be distressed that somebody else would be losing sleep over what he considered in his own perspective to be a needless worry. That is considering the interests of others ahead of your own. That's the mind of Christ. That's Epaphroditus. A brother, a fellow worker, a fellow soldier, a minister, and a messenger and a man who had and modeled that selfless mind of Christ. Next week, we'll continue looking at Epaphroditus. We'll look at the two other reasons why Paul says he's sending him home, and we'll deal with this issue of, of Christians and illness, Christians and sickness and the will of God. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for instructing us again on how selfless Christ was and our need to model our lives after him. We do pray, Lord God, that you would remind us once again of just how much you love us, how much you have served us, how much you have done for us to lift us out of the pit of despair and to seat us in the heavenly place and help us to apply the truth of the gospel and the selfless attitude demonstrated by Christ to our each and everyday lives. We do ask this for your glory, for Christ's sake, and for the advancement of your gospel and your kingdom in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church.